and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name's Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer and I run the production and device website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing and mastering your music. And with me, as always this week, is John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. Hi, Ian. Hello. And this week, we are doing another question and answer episode. Uh, we haven't done one for a while, and we've had some, some good stuff coming in from you guys um, via email, via the YouTube comments, on social media. Um, and yeah, it's, it's good to answer some of those questions sometimes. So, uh, John, what's the first question? First question comes from Kohop. He says, man, the host talks way too much compared to the guest. And this, <laughs> this was on an episode we had that didn't have a guest. And the comment came in through, um, through SoundCloud. Yeah. Cause I was, I was going to say, I, I took that personally immediately because like, I, I'm aware that in the last show we did, which was an interview with Graham Cochran about making money from mastering, which if you guys haven't listened to it, you really should. It was a great episode. But I, my intro to that was way too long. I, I, I was just, I was introducing him and talking and thinking, I'm talking too long. I'm talking too long, much as I am right now. Um, and anyway, so yeah, I should do less of that. But he was talking about you. That's yeah. But that that could have been one of the episodes where you you had to go out in the middle of the show, right? Yeah, I, I don't remember which episode this was, but I'm pretty sure it was one that we didn't have a guest. So he's talking about me not being in the show all that much, and it's usually just because. Either I don't want to interrupt or I don't have anything to add to the conversation. And especially when we have a guest, like when we had um, Graham or we had Dallas Taylor recently, um, there I was enjoying the whole conversation. I was just like taking it all in and trying to pay attention the best I could. In the Dallas Taylor one, I actually had to leave for 20 minutes to go get my kids from school and come back. And I don't think anyone noticed, really. Like, I've got like two lines of dialogue in that episode, uh, like hi and bye, essentially. But like, I, it's one of my favorite episodes we've done, regardless of me actually saying anything. Um, there was a kind of a larger section that we had cut out where I did most of the talking, but it, it didn't really add anything relevant to uh, to the the overall episode. So. We were nerding out about gaming audio, weren't we? That was, it yeah. was cool, but you're right. It was already a long episode yeah. and it, yeah, we didn't kind of add any extra information there. That's, no, I mean, hands up. I talk too much. That's, I mean, it's a weird thing. It's, it's a good thing about doing a podcast is that like when I'm recording myself for videos and stuff, I, there tend to be huge pauses where you can hear the cogs turning in my brain. Um, when I'm talking to you for these episodes, for some reason that doesn't happen, but the opposite happens, which is I talk too much. So I'm going to shut up. What's the next question? That wasn't really a question, but no, that's fair enough. It's, it's come up a few times, so I figured let's put it in the actual episode. And this is an episode where I get to do more talking by default. So. <laughs> that's what you think. <laughs> so the next question comes from Isaac. The other guy, not Ian, sounds like the guy from the Reaper blog videos. I mean, I get that a lot. That's It's, it's pretty common. We have a similar voice. And uh, yeah, I'm a fan of his stuff. <laughs> I see now now they mention it they're absolutely right you sound almost exactly like him yeah um that's that's spooky well maybe we should get him on as a guest <laughs> you could interview him <laughs> we're not making fun of you it, it's just it's funny um and we we mentioned that I'm from the reaper blog at the beginning and end of every episode so you know all the information is there next question comes from messiah of fire how dynamic is too dynamic? I find myself deliberately jumping from minus 20 LUFS to minus 
14 LUFS to really make a metal section jump after a folk section? This is a tough one because this is one of those questions where really the answer is it depends. But on the other hand, I think it's kind of interesting and worth answering because the answer is probably not as much as people might think. So to take a really extreme example, I did a video recently about the the Billie Eilish song Zanny, um, talking about whether or not it was mastered too loud. But one of the interesting things about that song is uh, that the the chorus sections are much, much louder than the really softly spoken. You know, I mean, Billy's thing is this kind of really close mic'd, really softly singing uh, style. So there's this dramatic contrast, um, and, and it's it's huge to the point where if you're in the car um, and you don't have it cranked up that much, you probably can't hear some of the stuff in the verses, some of the really quiet sections. Um, and I think it's something like 8 dBs difference there. But even 8 dBs doesn't kind of sound maybe that much when you've got 96 dBs total in 16-bit audio and 20 to 30 kind of just in normal kind of day-to-day variations. I, I kind of th- tend to think that somewhere around 4 to 5 dBs between the verse and the chorus is probably a reasonable sort of ballpark. But, but I mean, it does depend on the material, you know, because, I mean, it's... As I'm saying verse and chorus because that's a typical kind of contrast, but between a quiet and a loud section, it depends how loud you want stuff to feel and how quiet you want stuff to feel. I mean, do you, do you have any kind of rules of thumb, John? Um, I, I kind of do what uh, what you've told me in the past, something like uh, 4dB <laughs> uh, between sections. And um, and that, that works? It, yeah, it, it really works. So if I'm not sure, I'll, I'll kind of default to like 4dB difference. Often I'm, I adjust my levels, tend to adjust my levels pre-compression and pre-limiting. Um, and that means that if you push the level of something up by, say, 4dBs, you're not necessarily going to hear a 4dB increase at the other end. If there's a two-to-one ratio and you're kind of pushing up against the threshold of the compressor, you might only hear a couple of dBs or two to three dBs, depending on, on how it works. So, I mean, I have to say, I don't notice the numbers. I, I tend to do all of this stuff by ear. I use my, my general method of get the loudest bits so that I'm comfortable and that they're consistent on the whole throughout the album. Uh, and then everything else is balanced musically. When I have paid attention, it tends to be somewhere between three and five dBs, usually, I would say. And even, you know, that kind of complication of, okay, you might be controlling the gain prior to the dynamics processing. That shouldn't matter too much on a quiet thing, because that's probably not going to hit the compressor at all, if there's a large gap between. Yeah, that's true. But I was going to say, I mean, it all depends what the compressor settings are. You know, if you have higher ratios or maybe you have a much gentler ratio and the threshold much lower so that it's kind of just generally all being uh, squashed a little bit, um, that's going to, again, it's going to be different. So, yeah, I think that that is a a real it depends uh, situation. But... um, it's, I think it's worth bearing in mind that kind of, I would say 8 dBs. I mean, that that's, I find that contrast in the, the Billie Eilish song surprising. You know, it's, I think it's quite a brave artistic choice. I really like it, um, but it doesn't work that well for me in the car. I mean, my car stereo is not that great and the, the, the car is pretty noisy or the road surface is pretty noisy. So, but the thing with that song, if you like, the only thing you can really do is turn down the loud part to even that out. Because if it's, if you just bring up the quiet part to 
6 dB below the loud part, it's it's going to bring up noise and things, and it's not really going to, it's it's not going to sound as quiet. It's going to sound like something that was quiet turned up with all, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I if I was mastering that, I would probably have experimented myself. Maybe they did, you know, maybe they've already adjusted that balance and that's what they, they decided they wanted. I mean, certainly it would have a slightly different artistic effect. I mean, it, but it, I guess my point is with that song, it feels like an extreme, right? It feels like a bigger gap than we're used to in kind of mainstream pop. So just in terms of a benchmark, if you kind of have in your head, well, 8 dBs is, you know, I'm going to be doing something slightly unusual that people are really going to notice. And then, you know, I mean, if you've only got 2 or 3 dBs, it's probably not that much of a difference to kind of make a significant contrast. So then you're left with the kind of range we're discussing. So yeah, maybe that helps. Next question comes from Chris. As I'm using mostly the clip effects slot on WaveLab to process each song, and I have the clip envelope set up pre-effects so that I can automate the levels into the compressor, I'm wondering if it would be easier to export the processed songs and then do tops and tails separately on a separate project, maybe the one used to create the DDP, or simply do as I have been doing so far, which is spend ages adjusting the fade-out curve until I like how it sounds. That's a fairly long question. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that makes sense to people. I mean, it is something that I... So I do exactly the same as Chris. I have... The, you know, the nice thing about WaveLab is you can drop effects directly onto each song individually. So you can have them all lined up in the timeline. Um, then you can have... You have a separate master section where you can have maybe the limiter and kind of metering and stuff. So you can have individual settings for each song. Um, they move around with the song. If you decide to change the order or tweak, tweak stuff, um, it's a really flexible way of working. But if you like to be able to automate into the compressor, which I do, then as Chris says, you have this situation where maybe if the compression is working reasonably hard and then you want to do a long, slow fade, if you use automation to do that, the input level to the compressor will decrease as you fade out and therefore the sound of the song could change. I, I do the same as Chris. I just mess around with it until it sounds right. Every so often I get a situation where I can't get a result that I'm happy with. And in that case, I would print the the compressed version um, so that I can do the fade post-processing. But it's one of those things that I've thought about in theory. Maybe a handful of times it's bothered me, and the rest of the time I kind of feel like, ah, life's too short. Yeah. Um, and I, I do a similar thing in in Reaper. Um, most of the time I do have the effects on tracks rather than on the individual items. It's just the way that I prefer to work. You can do it both ways in Reaper, can you? Yeah, yeah. So you can have the item, the effects on the items. I don't like that because sometimes you need to do like slight edits timing edits or anything and then you have to duplicate the effects chain um, and if you make them want to make a change in the different chunks of audio you have to do that multiple things that gets annoying but there's a, there's a lot of um, professional mastering engineers that that do it that way regardless anyway i usually do my fades with uh, the item fades rather than uh, like a, a volume envelope which is technically wrong because that's before the compressor, but very rarely does it make a big difference. Unless you're fading out something that's very loud all the way to the end of the track and and you have that compression, that fade is going to be before the compression. Mm -hmm. um, the proper way to do it is to do uh, the, with the track volume envelope. So you're, you're fading out 
with the fader or on the master track. Most of the time, it just makes no difference at all. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, you're right. It, the, the, the problem situation is if you have really heavy compression, particularly right the way up and, and you want to fade over the top of it. But I find that tends to be quite rare. I think the other point I was going to make is that, and Chris said this, uh, we sliced it out of his question to, to make it a little bit shorter, but you know, he's saying he's only doing a few dBs of compression and I'm, I'm the same. So usually when the compression is pretty much, um, I guess, almost invisible, uh, you don't notice it so much when it goes away. I think, I think the, the change in level takes our ears attention more than the change in the dynamics processing that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I'm saying that there have been occasions where I have noticed this happening. So it's not a kind of cast iron thing. And possibly I'm making excuses for myself to make my life easier <laughs> just because it would be, it's a hassle to have to, I don't like baking in the processing because I, I I love to have the ability to tweak stuff right to the the kind of final point. Sometimes, you know, even when I'm like previewing gaps and, and well, yeah, tops and tails, um, I might suddenly go, oh, actually, I want to, you know, I'm going to tweak that EQ slightly or, you know, something there yeah. is not quite right. And I like having that flexibility right up to the last minute. Um, you know, it's already a hassle to to mix in one project and master in another project. I wouldn't want to master in a project and then do another one just to make the DDP or not even the DDP, but just do fades and then export again to make a the DDP. No way. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some people who do that all the time. Um like lots of pro mastering engineers will play out from one DAW through an analog processing chain and record into another one. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, if, if, you know, if you have the, the gear for that and the patience, um, then that's great. But I have to, I mean, I worked for 15 years mastering in real time. Um, you know, even when I was working in Sadie, it was looping the audio out through the chain and recording it back into the same system. On the one hand, there's there's that's kind of a good discipline, and you 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 are listening to the final audio, and it kind of just gives you a bit of time to think and to process. But I these days I really enjoy the extra speed and flexibility of you know just knowing that I can run the the DDP uh, right at the end with any of the processing I've got in there and have all that flexibility. So yeah, I think we've answered that one. Next question comes from Christian. How do you guys think the loudness wars have changed the way people arrange popular music? Most producers go for a very sparse arrangement, which works well if it needs to be pushed really loud. And also lots of modern pop music use rhythmic samples that are mostly free of any transient. The kick and snare samples have been replaced with other rhythmic elements that drive the rhythm the same way, but without triggering the limiter to the same extent. I don't think I've really noticed that happening, but I don't listen to a lot of pop, but that does make a lot of sense. I don't know if that's really fighting the the loudness war or just, you know, merging of genres and um and and trying to stand out by doing new things. It's an interesting question. I think there's two things that kind of spring to mind for me. I mean, one is uh I do think things have changed because people are now using pre-produced sounds so much, right? So um synth sounds and, you know, patches and samples and sample packs and all the rest of it. And a lot of that has been uh, heavily compressed and limited to begin with in order to achieve the sounds. So I think a lot of the raw ingredients, uh, quite a common question I get uh, from people who are interested in making their music more dynamic. I get people kind of going, done my mix and it's it's only, it's not that dynamic and I haven't used any compression or limiting yet. 
is that a problem? Um, and, you know, kind of my answer is, well, no. Uh, you know, if that's, if the, the raw ingredients that you built your song from uh, weren't super transient to begin with and you like the way they sound, then it's all good. And it doesn't matter that, you know, there's not that much peak to loudness ratio. Whereas back in the day, you know, everything was would be recorded acoustically. Even if you were using a sampler, the chances are you probably, I guess some people were sampling other records, but lots of people were sampling kind of real sounds to begin with. And those could have been pretty dynamic to start with. Um, so that's one thing. The other one is just recently I saw uh, a video of a new track by Skrillex where the music video was basically him or somebody scrolling through the project in Ableton, just opening stuff up. We had um, the Fab Filter Pro L and he opened one of them up. And I mean, it was I, it was like a hi-hat loop or something and it had 10 dBs of game reduction happening, you know, which is super aggressive. And, uh, but that's the sound that he was going with. I think that sometimes they'll put up a video like that as a way to like get people off of the right track. So he's playing one thing, but we're seeing another. We're seeing every uh, channel distorted and and ten dBs of gain reduction on every single track and and well, I mean that's but, conceivable, no. but I mean it was super <laughs> super loud. So um, I, yeah, who, who knows? Um, but I mean I've heard that before. I've heard I've had um, quite lengthy um, let's call them discussions <laughs> with with people who say that I should stop going on about loudness and all the rest of it. I just simply don't understand modern EDM production techniques and and claiming that this is the way that these guys work. Um, and actually, I think, to be honest, listening to a lot of these productions, it has to be the way they work, right? You, you couldn't just take an entire track and slam it through a single limiter and get the kind of results that they're achieving. Um, so either way, I mean, that to me is an example of the way that things have changed. I still think that's kind of a shame because I feel like you know, where I noticed that kind of super slammed sound the most is in the drums. And I've said this before, my, my opinion is you could, if if you if that's what you want, you could heavily limit, for example, the drum bus and then not limit everything else so much, give yourself a bit more peak headroom. You could get the same sound that you're achieving, but have the benefits of extra peak headroom on the other elements in the mix. Um, but that's kind of slightly off topic. I mean, I think the other thing that I hear is just extreme loudness on stuff that doesn't really make any sense to me and the one that i've forgotten her name who's the wrecking ball girl miley cyrus did an album of basically kind of country songs um and they were up at minus four lufs or something ridiculous and they were distorted and they were crushed to death and i just listened to it and I, it just doesn't compute to me i don't see the benefit of that sound for that genre same thing with the the last Kylie Minogue album was just super super loud and it just baffles me. I'm kind of well, we don't need to go. Down. <laughs> I've said this enough before. You know, with EDM with Skrillex, it's there. I can see the argument of okay, that's the sound, that's an integral part of the of the genre. Therefore, it has to happen that way. I still think there are alternatives, but that's just me, and I'm an extremist. But you know, kind of poppy folk, country music, or just straightforward pop. It's weird. Anyway. I haven't noticed so much the rhythmic elements being replaced. I mean, that's something I feel like has been happening for a long time is people using unusual instruments to to make the the rhythm tracks, certainly since since people have been using drum machines. But the other thing I notice is just sounds that sound very different than they might otherwise have done 
in order to achieve loudness. So you'll hear kick drums with no low frequency at all. And that's sometimes a production decision. If you've got a really deep subby bass, then if you put a deep subby kick in there as well, the chances are the two are going to fight each other. So you probably have to choose one or the other and shape the, the tone to make those two work together. But I've heard some really extreme examples of that where, you know, the kick is basically just a kind of a click. And I'm convinced that that's been done because loudness was the goal at some stage in the production rather than melody <laughs> or anything else. <laughs> well, but, but, but rather than because it particularly sounds good that way, you know, I'm kind of listening to you thinking, well, it would have been nice to have had some more weight in there. You know, it's clearly meant to have impact. Um, and it, it kind of doesn't because there's, there's nothing left there. So I, I guess the answer is yes. I've definitely heard changes in music production that I think are influenced by the loudness wars. In some cases, it's like obviously because of the loudness war, just, you know, I mean, you hear stuff that's extremely distorted, but not super loud. That's a production decision. They wanted a distorted, crunchy sound. That's what they went for. And then you hear other stuff and it's just like, well, that's obviously distorted just because it is so loud. And the, yeah, the, the the kind of the super, super dense production style where everything is full tilt the whole time, uh, you know, is is kind of new, I think. And certainly comes from the processing that is intended to achieve loudness, even if it's not a kind of deliberate decision in somebody's head. But I also think everybody everywhere just thinks they need it loud. It's just kind of this mindset. I mean, again, yeah, there's people criticising my perspective on all of this saying oh you're telling people the wrong thing if people follow your advice they're not going to be able to achieve a contemporary sound they're going to lose work that you know all the rest of it and I kind of feel like well that might be true but I feel like I'm one percent <laughs> of the information that's out there and all the rest of it is basically just saying you need to slam it and hits how the next question came from YouTube this question is from Kamakat Fly could you give some tips for, quote, mastering audio for Twitch streamers? How loud is enough? Is there a LUFS target for nice voice sound on Twitch? I haven't watched a ton of Twitch, um, but it's it's online gaming streaming. So Mostly. it's pe people playing Fortnite or Doom or whatever, but you can also hear and probably see the person playing at the same time. So Sometimes it's just kind of stream of consciousness. Sometimes it's a tutorial, kind of sometimes it's a speed run or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's a really interesting question because I, I haven't looked at Twitch. So I, I genuinely don't know. I watch quite a bit of it. Okay. And there's definitely like good sounding streams and bad sounding streams. The volume difference kind of evens itself out, I want to say, because the audience gives live feedback on if it's too quiet or too loud or distorted or whatever it is. I would say that a similar loudness to a podcast or something like that would be a good starting point at least. So mm -hmm. something like minus 18 to minus 16, minus 14 at the, the loudest momentary, mm. that would be a good target. It shouldn't sound distorted or even sound compressed, but it should be clean, clean noise floor, like use noise reduction, use gating, um, you can do those things live on uh, through OBS through you can load plugins through there. So, but there's also the balance of your microphone versus the people that you're playing with. You know your teammates mm -hmm. that needs to come in through a at a similar level. There's the gameplay audio, the music in the background, 
if you're doing sound effects, if you have alerts for new subs and things like that, all those things need to be balanced. I see pretty much every streamer every single day, the first half hour or so that they start their stream, they're tweaking those those levels. Uh, so it, it's something that's constantly changing. But basically the starting point of trying to get good, clean dialogue at a level of about um, minus 18 LUFS integrated would be a good starting point. It's interesting. I mean, that was going to be my guess, spoken word in general. You know, once you start getting up into the kind of minus 14 region, you're getting that kind of super compressed sort of FM radio style sound to the voice, um, which I think particularly, I think that works kind of okay for, for short bursts of DJ stuff. Um, you know, sort of interspersed yeah. with music. But I think if if people are talking for a long time, it's like we experimented in the early days of the pod, this podcast with with going a bit louder, and it just kind of it starts to get a bit exhausting. Mm-hmm. I think I find that with a lot of other podcasts as well. Yeah, if if, if it's just going for loudness, like like mastered music loudness, it's like no way. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another. That's, it's a little tangent, but. Um, if, if you have a mix of voice and music, typically the voice wants to be probably 3 dBs quieter than the music to get the balance to sound about right. I've actually uh, was discussing this recently and, and measured some uh, some BBC radio broadcasts just out of interest and found that that was pretty much exactly what, what they had. Um, but yeah, even then, the the voice is going to be right up there. And I think for, yeah, for longer form content... Um, less loudness is better but it's interesting what you were saying there that actually the key thing really i mean rather than the overall loudness because i mean most of these streams will be i'm guessing sometimes hours long yeah i see people going for 12 hours oh wow 12 hours okay (laughs) (laughs) i had no idea it was that that epic um but yeah it's going to be the the most important thing is going to be the balance between the different uh people on the call and the the audio the game itself so that you can hear enough to kind of have the atmosphere and any in-game dialogue and any of that kind of stuff without it drowning people out or kind of deafening people. So, and and lots of games tend to be pretty dynamic. Yes. Yeah. So we had uh, Jay Fernandez on as a guest in episode number twenty-seven, talking about audio for games. I think it might be Sony, but he definitely said that one of the the big gaming companies had made the decision to go with minus twenty-four LUFS as the you know the same as the broadcast standard for loudness. So that's that's a ton of dynamics available in a game then you could have a situation i guess where if you were trying to combine that with vocals yourself if the voices were at minus 18 you might then have to bring the game audio up and use extra limiting um so yeah definitely a can of worms there mm-hmm. it's kind of cool that the audience are giving people feedback on what they're hearing and it kind of improves iteratively as, as the broadcast goes on um, yeah. but, but it would definitely be nice. I mean, I know that myself, I've done the occasional webcast where things haven't been quite right. And I always prefer to check that stuff bef- beforehand if I can. Um, and I guess that's a quick and easy way to, to appear slick. It would be to, to do a quick sound check before, you, you know, even if you just streamed it privately to somebody or somewhere else in your house or whatever it is to check that the levels are getting through as you expected. Yeah. There's a lot of people on mobile and, and, and TVs and, and there's just a, like a wide range of environments that people are, are in as they're watching. Um, but it's, it's a really cool platform. No, well, it's, it's an interesting, I remember kind of hearing people talking about it before it had really gone mainstream. Um, and just kind of think to myself, are people really going to do that? Um, and I now know that it's 
almost all that my kids watch <laughs> is other people <laughs> gaming. And the last question comes from Don. Is mastering different for various genres and how? So the answer to this is yes and no, I would say. Um, I actually just did uh, a blog post for Isotope. They asked me to write something about mastering metal, um, which I was very happy to do. And I was really pleased with the way that the post turned out. But one of the challenges was thinking of things to say that actually were specific to the metal genre rather than just general mastering comments. I've had a good response to it, but I've also had at least one person kind of saying, all of this stuff is super obvious. <laughs> um, so we can put the link to that um, in the show notes, along with uh, anything else we've talked about this episode at themasteringshow.com for anybody who wants to check it out. For example, one of the things that I talk about in that post to do with Mastering Metal is that you might want to have really fine control over distortion, the degree of distortion that you use. Um, there's a one of the videos in the Home Mastering Masterclass course um, that I offer on my website talks about the, the the track. It's a metal track. And my feeling about it is that it's just actually too clean. It's recorded super clean. And I just feel it needs a little bit of extra kind of edge and grit and some slight subtle distortion to it to give it that kind of aggression that the sound kind of seems to need. Now, that's something that I might consider for... It, it doesn't... It's not actually that necessary if i find for metal often because a lot of it comes in with tons of distortion on it anyway uh but if it in a situation like that it's definitely something i would consider personally it's not that's not something that i would ever do for example in folk or acoustic music i mean we were just talking about how you do hear those genres with plenty of distortion in the sound but i tend to feel that that's more of a creative decision at the mix stage rather than the mastering stage unless the client specifically requests it again with something that's intended to sound super aggressive and super dense like edm or metal um you might go for much more aggressive dynamics processing than you would on more natural sounding acoustic genres um what springs to mind for you john i tend to use things like parallel compression more on like acoustic stuff where I have a hard time bringing up to like the uh, the competitive level, I would say. Um, sometimes the stuff is just so sparse that just turning it up to, you know, and, and hitting the limiter makes it sound distorted. So I'll use parallel compression to kind of bring up the overall level and, and kind of make it a little bit denser without really adding distortion and things like that. But it's really hard to do that with metal because it's already so dense. And so maybe you're using transient shaping or something to like increase the the transient attacks and stuff that's been already obliterated through the mixing process. With rap, it's it's sometimes that is just a vocal on top of a pre-made beat. And so that requires a different strategy often. So but the tools are basically the same regardless you need a good loudness meter you need eq a limiter and some sort of compression you know maybe a single band compressor and a multi-band or you know whatever your favorite tools are there but it, they're pretty much going to be used in the same way and maybe there's a couple tricks here and there that are different but again you know one metal band is different than another so yeah, I mean, that's another one of the things I, I go into in the article is just 
I mean, metal in particular is an incredibly diverse genre. So in, in some ways it's like mastering metal. Well, I mean, you could have as much variety in there as you could in any other genre of music. Um, but, and, and yeah, I think the other thing that I feel is that yes, there may be a differences between the genres, but they, they just tend to, it's in response to the material. For example, in something like pop or R&B or rap, you probably want a really upfront bass sound, for example, some, something that might sound overblown if it was in an acoustic, you know, typically in yeah. acoustic music, you're not going to have a kick drum that kind of just shakes the room. I still like to feel a little bit of sub, um, but it's just a question of degree. Um, but that's not a kind of hard and fast rule. In fact, just springing to mind is is a folk album I did a few years ago where it had exactly that. It had just had a pounding kick drum all the way through, and I actually kind of queried it with the client. It was like, is that that? And yeah, that was the intention. So, you know, rules are made to be broken, um, and in some ways, that's where it gets interesting. Is where, uh, you know, a, a sound that maybe people don't expect is used, and you get those kind of crossovers. So, I think there are you know kind of broad generalizations for me if i'm mastering jazz say i probably don't push the levels quite as hard as i might in other genres it's certainly not a night and day difference and the approach is the same it's you know it's always like you say it's it's the same tools it's the same strategies it's just responding to to the material um which is a great mastering maxim for anybody out there <laughs> listen to the material and and you know try and understand what it was that the artists were trying to achieve, what the emotional intention is, uh, and just help that. Make it more, make it better, make it the best it can be. Sounds like we're done. <laughs> Excellent. I did talk a lot, but I feel like you managed to get a word in edgewise this time. I think so. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thank you, John, as always, for helping out with the show and mixing and editing the episodes. Uh, thanks to you guys for sending us your questions um, and your feedback. It's always great to, to hear from you, to know that we're not talking into a, a big empty space out there. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks for listening. <laughs>